You are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the Acts of the Apostles. Dr. George has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us here today, covering Acts chapter 8 through chapter 9, verse 30. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through Acts of the Apostles from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. And now, here is Dr. George covering Philip in Samaria. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Luke tells us that the very day of Stephen's martyrdom, a bitter persecution started against the church in Jerusalem, and everyone except the apostles scattered to the country districts of Judea and Samaria. At first glance, this seems to be a terrible event in the early days of the church. But we must keep in mind that nothing happens outside the providence of God. And in fact, in a certain way, Jesus had foretold this. In fact, he had commanded such an event because at the beginning, at the start of Acts of the Apostles, St. Luke, in recounting Jesus' words to his apostles just before he ascends into heaven, he tells them that he will send upon them the Holy Spirit. He says, you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, Jesus says, and then you will be my witnesses throughout Judea and Samaria and even to the earth's remotest ends. So the dispersion that happens because the people flee, they flee, yes, in fear, but it is not a cowardly kind of fear. They flee because they want to live, they want to protect their families, they want to dwell in a place where they can worship the Lord, serve the Lord, and proclaim the gospel. So in this dispersion, what actually is taking place is that the word of God begins to go out to the ends of the earth. And it's very beautiful. And Jesus himself foretells this, that it will go out from the city of Jerusalem into the countryside of Judea, into Samaria, and then beyond the regions of Palestine itself. Therefore, when we discover shortly afterwards that Philip, the deacon Philip, this is one of the seven, Stephen has been martyred, the deacon Philip, not the apostle Philip, then goes into the region of Samaria to proclaim the gospel. And there is something very appropriate in this, because the gospel moves out from the holy city of Jerusalem into the nearby countryside, the villages and so on surrounding, then into the region of Samaria. We have to remember that the Samaritans were a people very much hated by the Jews. The Jews were very hostile to them. We discover this hostility repeatedly in the Gospels. There, in fact, had been an enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans that had gone on for many, many centuries. Jesus, however, reveals a tender love for the Samaritans. Jesus, in his public ministry, more than once goes into the region of Samaria to proclaim the good news. The Samaritans were a mixed race whose origin 
was in Jacob. They were descendants of Israel, but they were a mixed race because the lands of the northern kingdom had been conquered many centuries earlier by the Assyrians. The people had been, some of them destroyed, many of them exiled, and in being a conquered people, some of the Samaritans, formerly Israelites, had intermingled with the Assyrians, intermarried with the Assyrians, and they were no longer pure in their descent, according to the Jews. They were like a contaminated people. But the Samaritans had divine revelation, as did the Jews. They believed in the Pentateuch. They followed the Mosaic Law. But they had differences. They did not embrace all of Jewish tradition. There was a problem a number of centuries before the time of Christ, following the exile, the return of the people from the Babylonian exile, and it had to do with the construction of the temple. The Samaritans, in the end, rejected the Jewish temple, the, the temple of Jerusalem. They built their own temple on Mount Gerizim and proceeded to worship God. So at the time of Christ, in this enmity between the Samaritans and the Jews, much of it depended upon this hostility that existed because the Jews saw the Samaritans as heretics and in some ways as worse than even the pagan peoples. They completely repudiated the Samaritans. The Samaritans disowned the temple life and the Levitical priesthood connected with it. But there was much goodness in the Samaritan people. And Jesus himself reveals this by his own actions and also by his teachings. St. Luke, we recall, records in his gospel a parable Jesus tells, whereby a man is beaten and left at the side of a road, and a Jewish priest and a Levite pass him by and do not help him. It is the Samaritan who is charitable, the good Samaritan. We also recall the incident of Jesus' healing the ten lepers who come to him, and nine of them go off, but one of the lepers, now healed, returns and thanks Jesus and prostrates himself at his feet. He worships Jesus. And St. Luke records it was a Samaritan who had done this. So the Samaritan, the Samaritans were a, a good people, and in fact, God was preparing them to receive the gospel down through the centuries in spite of all the difficulties they had in their history. It is appropriate then that Philip, the deacon, goes into Samaria to proclaim the gospel. We know they were prepared by God to hear the gospel because what does St. Luke tell us? That Philip went to a Samaritan town, in other words, a town in the region of Samaria, and proclaimed the Christ to them the people unanimously welcomed the message Philip preached because they heard the miracles he worked and because they saw them for themselves. So much faith do they have, so eager are they to embrace the gospel that they already begin to believe in Christ simply having heard of the miracles that Philip has been working. And then he comes among them and he proceeds to perform other miracles. We recall the Jews' response to Jesus' miracles. In hearing about the wonders he worked, they continued to deny him and reject him and dismiss him. 
and even in the presence of those very same miracles, they accused him of working them by the power of Beelzebul. So the Samaritans do not respond at all in this way. Philip expels demons. St. Luke writes, unclean spirits came shrieking out of many who were possessed, and several paralytics and cripples were cured. As a result, there was great rejoicing in that town. The people rejoice because they have accepted the gospel. Now, Philip goes on to catechize the people because they are receiving the good news. He explains to them the mysteries of Christ and invites them, of course, to the waters of baptism. This is the same thing that's going to happen in the very next scene when God sends the deacon Philip to a road going out of Jerusalem where there is an Ethiopian eunuch who is passing on that road, and he will proclaim the good news to him also. And in proclaiming that good news, reveal the necessity of baptism, the gift of baptism. Now he is in the Samaritan town doing this. The people embrace the gospel. They want to be inserted into the mysteries of Christ, which Philip is proclaiming. So he proceeds to baptize, no doubt, many of the people. There is a passage, however, that we're intrigued by, we find interesting. St. Luke says, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, and they went down there and prayed for them to receive the Holy Spirit. This is the people who have just been baptized by Philip. For as yet, St. Luke writes, he had, the Holy Spirit, had not come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And we wonder, had they received the Holy Spirit or not? We know that we receive the Holy Spirit in baptism, that we become temples of the Holy Spirit, of God who dwells in us, through the sacrament, through having received the sacrament of baptism. Baptism is the basis or foundation of the whole of the Christian life. It is the gateway to our life in the Spirit. Through baptism, we participate, we share in God's own life. We become adopted children of the Father. We become brothers and sisters of Christ and co-heirs with Him. We become members of Christ's own body, and as such, we are living temples of the Holy Spirit. So God lives in us and we in God in virtue of our baptism. And yet, God is revealing to us in the New Testament that there is a receiving of the Holy Spirit which follows upon baptism, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit which confirms the grace we have received in baptism. Confirmation, the sacrament of confirmation, confirms and also completes baptismal grace. Philip is a deacon and he can baptize. He can preach and he can baptize as deacons do today. But only the apostles of Christ and their successors have the power to lay on their hands and to confirm a person in the Holy Spirit, so that the Holy Spirit, through the laying on of hands, is poured out upon that person. The apostles, in hearing this, are eager to go into the region of Samaria to complete the baptismal grace, to confirm 
the Samaritans in the grace of their baptism. And so they go, they go forward to do this. There are three sacraments, as we know from sacred scripture and from sacred tradition. The church reveals that from the earliest days of the church, that in entering and being inserted fully into the mysteries of Christ, what we call the sacraments of Christian initiation, by which we are fully initiated, inserted into the mysteries of Christ, are baptism first. Baptism must be first because it is the door that gives us access to the other sacraments. Secondly, confirmation then, by which we receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it is in the sacrament of confirmation that we are enriched with a special strength of the Holy Spirit, as the Church tells us. And we are prepared then to spread and defend the faith in word and in deed. We are prepared to go out as missionaries to share in the apostolic work of the Church. The third sacrament of Christian initiation is the sacrament of the Eucharist. And in this too, only the apostles could confect the Eucharist. Now, priests confect the Eucharist, but they do so in the authority and power of the bishop under whom they serve. Philip baptized the Samaritans, but he could not bring to completion the sacraments of Christian initiation. The apostles, in hearing that they had been baptized, were anxious to go out into Samaria and to confirm them and also to celebrate the mystery of the Eucharist. Now, there is a man in this town of Samaria whose name is Simon, and we find out that he has been practicing the magic arts. He is a magician. He is a sorcerer. He practices wizardry. And this, of course, contravenes the law of God. It doesn't matter if we're speaking of Christians or of unbaptized people, the Gentiles, the pagans. It always contravenes the law of God for man to tamper with the occult, to covet any kinds of powers in the spiritual world, because we worship God alone. And there is a certain way in which we must never grasp at the power, the authority, the domain that belongs to God alone. But as religious beings, because we are religious beings, we are body and soul, flesh and spirit, there is something about the spiritual world that always intrigues us. And so people sometimes will go after certain knowledge. They want to have not only knowledge, but experience in the spiritual world. Now, it is not God that is going to collaborate with them in this effort. Satan, however, the fallen angels, the spiritual persons, are only too eager to collaborate with any of the human persons on earth who want to, in a sense, we must say, overstep their bounds in this matter. That is why we know that people who dabble in the occult, who do things like with tarot cards and seances and glass balls they read or whatever, sometimes will experience things that they, they think might be miraculous. But we must remember only God can work a miracle. Only God can work miracles. The angels can't work miracles. Certainly the demons can't work miracles. But spiritual beings, angels, are very powerful. And they function, they live in a domain 
that exceeds our understanding, our knowledge and experience. It is not difficult for Satan to do something in the created order that astounds us. It's not a miracle, but to us it looks pretty amazing because it is beyond our human powers to affect a certain result in the created order. But in order to have such powers, in other words, to get them from Satan, from the demons, it comes at a great price. We have to basically hand over our own freedom. It comes at the cost of our soul. We have to, in essence, sell our soul to the devil so that he hands over to us his kingdom, his power. But it will be to our destruction, and of course what he is really doing is trying to affect the destruction of many others. Now, Simon has been tampering in the occult, and evidently he has been practicing magic arts in such a way as to astound the people in the region of Samaria. He had given it out. St. Luke writes that he was someone momentous. Everyone believed in him. Eminent citizens and ordinary people alike had declared he is the divine power that is called great. That would be comparable to Almighty, that they saw him as having power that was above and beyond something that they could understand. And so he had a great following as a consequence. But in hearing Philip's preaching, he too comes to be baptized. Now, in the soul of every person, when we hear the gospel proclaimed to us, we must turn away from our former ignorance, our former way of life, our former sinfulness, and we must embrace a new life, a new way. Even after receiving baptism, there is a struggle that goes on within us because of our defects of soul, because of our concupiscence, because of the sin that remains in our heart, which must be purified over a period of time. There is a battle that goes on in us so that there is a constant temptation for us to sort of turn back to that thing that we coveted, to that thing that satisfied us in some way. But we have to renounce it, put it behind us, and we have to embrace God's law, be obedient to his way. We sense this struggle going on in Simon. Now, he must have been amazed by Philip, and perhaps in his imperfection, in his sinfulness, he perhaps liked to follow Philip and to listen to his preaching, in part because he was intrigued by Philip's powers to perform miracles. So there is perhaps a connection. That in other words, he was doing this not totally for the right reason, and yet there was something in him that drew him to this, to a knowledge of God, who is the source of what Philip was doing. But when the apostles come down to Samaria, and through the laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit is poured into the baptized people, Simon is astounded at the power the apostles have through the laying on of hands. And he wants this for himself. So St. Luke writes, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. And what did he say? St. Luke says, he offered the money with the words, give me. Those are the first words of his sentence. Give me. Give me the power. He is revealing the sin in his heart. Give me the same power so that anyone I lay my hands on will receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is hugely problematic for several reasons. And in fact, the word simony, which you can now find in any English dictionary, 
is based upon the name Simon. It's based upon this very incident in divine revelation. Simony is the trafficking, the buying and selling of the holy things of God, something we cannot ever do. What God has given us, the sacraments, the gift of salvation, these are free gifts given to us by God. No one can buy them. No one can pay for them. They are beyond price, and they are also unmerited. We can't even merit the gift of salvation. We cannot merit the gift of any of the sacraments. As the Church tells us in the Catechism, it is impossible to appropriate to oneself the spiritual goods. We cannot grasp at them. We recall what St. Paul says, that beautiful canticle, at the beginning of his letter to the Philippians when he is speaking of Christ, that God becomes man, how he emptied himself. And he says, though he was in the form of God, he humbled himself and did not grasp at. God corrects, in Christ his Son, corrects the grasping at God, the domain of God, the power of God, that was really at the source of the fall. The fact that God said there is a domain that you do not have the right to take, to grasp at, to appropriate to yourself just because you want it. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve grasped at the power of God and the knowledge of God and fell through that. We cannot appropriate to ourselves the spiritual goods. We cannot behave toward the spiritual goods, the holy things of God, as if we are their owner or their master, even the gifts we ourselves have received. And so, this is what Simon is doing. And in doing so, he is presuming upon, in a sense, well, he is offending the very gift of baptism that he has just received. He is presumptuous before God. He is desiring to have power because he wants the power the apostles have. He wants to have power over other people and over the events of life. And if you think about it, all forms of tampering in the occult, of magic, of sorcery, horoscope reading, fortune telling, whatever, all of these things, what underlies them is a desire to have power over our life over the lives of others, and over the events of history itself. And therefore, these actions, as the Church tells us, contradict the respect and loving fear that we owe to God alone. How does Peter answer Simon? He says, May your silver be lost forever, and you with it, for thinking that money could buy what God has given for nothing. He is very strict with them. He says, you have no share, no part in this. He can have no share in this life of the Holy Spirit that he wants to now buy for money. Repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that this scheme of yours may be forgiven. And he goes on to say, it is plain to me that you are held in the chains of sin. Simon, of course, replies, he says, would you pray for me, you and the apostles? There is this beautiful moment where there is this turning away. He sees that he is destroying himself. He already begins to receive the grace of repentance and conversion of heart because he humbles himself. Now perhaps it is a servile fear. It's an imperfect kind of fear of the Lord. Nevertheless, it is a fear of the Lord. He says, would you pray for me? Because he does not, he himself does not want to be lost.
Thanks for listening to Dr. George on Real Presence Radio. For more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will be covering Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And now, back to Dr. George. The Lord then speaks to Philip. He sends an angel to him, and he tells him to go along the road, leaving the city of Jerusalem, and there he will find an Ethiopian eunuch in a chariot who's reading scripture. The Lord sends Philip to him. And St. Luke says, the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join that chariot. So he runs up alongside the chariot, and he notices that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading the prophet Isaiah. And he is reading a passage, a passage we all know, we hear it every year at the Easter Triduum as we celebrate the Paschal Mystery of Christ, one of the songs, the fourth song of the suffering servant, whereby the prophet Isaiah, in speaking of Christ, the Messiah to come, spoke of this sheep that would be led to the slaughter, a lamb that would be led to the shearer, and who would go to the shearer silent without opening his mouth. And he goes on to say, in his humiliation, fair judgment was denied to him. And he says, who will ever talk about his descendants? Now this is the Messiah, since his life on earth has been cut short. Now there are many rich little lessons in just this one event. But we have to back up. First of all, the Ethiopian eunuch, it is interesting he is coming on pilgrimage from Jerusalem. We do not know if he is a pagan who simply was a God-fearer, who knew something of God, or if he was a proselyte, because he obviously knows something of the Hebrew Scriptures, of divine revelation. He has gone to the holy city of Jerusalem on pilgrimage. So he gives honor to God. So he has a spiritual life. There is a seeking God, a desire for goodness. It is God who has prepared him for this very thing. Certainly one of the points we can extract from this, it's a very beautiful thing, it is this, that God prepares each of us on the road, on the journey of life, and at those critical moments when we have questions, pressing questions, questions in our heart that we truly sense we need to unwrap, we need to understand the answer, we need to be able to interpret what God has spoken from days of old. We need to know this for ourselves in our own journey of life and in order to know God better. God always sends the right person at the right moment to help us understand, to give us knowledge and give us understanding. Granted, this is a miraculous intervention with regard to Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, but God does this in natural ways in the circumstances of our life all the time. We have sort of a quiet questioning, seeking going on in our heart. Perhaps we want clarification. Perhaps it is consolation. Perhaps it is guidance, exhortation. And in ways that we can never anticipate, we find ourselves talking to a person who says something the person isn't even aware, that he or she is saying something that matters so much to us. God uses us this way also in conversations or in the events of our life. It can be through an action of ours that another person simply observes. So by our example, and we will be unaware in many of these instances that God is using us to answer the question someone else has in their heart. It's a profound thing. Time and again in Scripture, God teaches us, 
that he is solicitous of our needs. He is aware of our needs. He answers our needs always at the right moment and the right time. We sometimes feel as if we needed to hear an answer and it didn't come. It's because it wasn't the right time. It's because we don't see things with the eyes of God all the time. But he always gives us exactly what we need at the right time. Now, secondly, when Philip goes up to him, he sees him reading the passage from the prophet Isaiah, and he asks the Ethiopian eunuch, do you understand what you are reading? And this would have been intriguing to Philip because he sees this eunuch in the chariot. He's studying this. He asks him if he understands it. Philip knows he has been sent by God, and he needs to get to the bottom of why he's been sent and what he's been sent to do. What is the eunuch's response? He says, how could I understand unless there is someone to guide me? And the church herself, down through the centuries, has used this passage to affirm what God has revealed from the Old Testament and, of course, into the New. And it is this, that it is through those servants in the age of the church, the church herself, that God guarantees his truth because he has given the Holy Spirit to those who speak as prophet, to those who speak the word, to those who explain and understand. We saw this in an incredible way at the incident of the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen, St. Luke says, was filled with the Holy Spirit. He repeats it, actually, that he was filled with grace and wisdom and the Holy Spirit. And when he quotes the Hebrew scriptures, it would have been profound. Saul was standing off to the side. He would have heard Stephen's address. He would have meditated upon the interpretation that Stephen gave the scriptures because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. God was already guiding Saul to understand the mystery of Christ because of what Stephen was saying. Stephen could not have known in that moment how his words were affecting Saul. And yet, in a sense, we can say that God had sent Stephen in that moment to Saul and to a great many others, speaking the very thing, answering questions. Saul was a brilliant man. He had to have grappled with these passages in Scripture many times over, and all of a sudden now, Stephen is unfolding them, breaking them open in a way that would have astounded and marveled his listeners. Jesus did this, of course, throughout his public ministry. And now, Philip does this for the Ethiopian eunuch. Why this particular passage in Scripture? There are several things we might say about it. In the first place, we must remember that it is in the songs of the suffering servant that are foretold by the prophets, the prophet Isaiah in particular, the suffering servant's songs characterize, speak of the Messiah. God is preparing us for the Messiah, for the life of the Messiah, and the suffering and death which the Anointed One of God will undergo. God prepares us so that we can understand when we look upon the passion of Christ, that we can understand that this had been foretold and that it was the will of God, the foreknowledge of God from the beginning. There is a way in which we are always scandalized by suffering. One of the reasons that the Jews refused to believe in Jesus as he passed through the passion and his death is because they were so scandalized by the terrible suffering, by his crucifixion, that they couldn't believe that the Messiah, the one whom God had said, would vanquish 
the enemies of Israel, that nations would tremble before him, that enemies would fall down before his feet, because the psalmist says these things, that this man, who had revealed he was the Messiah, was tortured and was dying on the cross. They challenge him, if you are God, now they're saying it with contempt and scorn, but they did have a question that was at the root of this when they said to Jesus, hanging on the cross, if you are the Christ, come down from that cross. The fact that he didn't, that he died, proved to the Jews that he could not be the Messiah. Because the Messiah could never look like this. Now we say, 2,000 years later, well, we don't have that problem, we don't have that stumbling block, but we still do in another form. There is a way in which terrible suffering, death, martyrdom, persecution, crucifixion, always scandalizes us when it touches close to home. We know the story of Jesus, but all of a sudden when we see that it's a loved one or we ourselves that must be crucified, we look upon this and say, is this God? Where is God in this? This can't be God. But we have to remind ourselves of what God said about this from the beginning, that this is his son because he had foretold it. What is the question that is in the heart of the Ethiopian eunuch? He asked Philip, tell me, he says, is the prophet referring to himself or to someone else? That is a profound question. He wants to know, first of all, exactly who the prophet is speaking of. Now remember, when the prophets spoke of the Messiah, because they were privileged prophets, they were, in a sense we could say, already configured as prefigurements of Christ to the suffering Christ. They already had, in the Old Testament, their own suffering or portion, in a sense, in the suffering servant of God. And so, Isaiah suffered. He was persecuted. He died. And so he tasted the very mystery that he proclaimed. Now there is something else going on here because the Ethiopian eunuch is asking, who is he talking about? He needs the question answered for himself. Because in some way or form, he recognizes himself in this and it fits his life and yet it scandalizes him that it does fit his life. He needs to understand. There's a beautiful thing going on in the sense that when we have a question, when we have something that keeps coming back to us, we ponder it in our heart, it is God himself who places that in us, that we have to grapple with it and ponder it, sometimes for days, weeks, months, perhaps even years of our life. And we sense that the answer, the full understanding of that question, has something important to do with us in our life, our journey, our vocation. And that if we could just understand it, that we would have enlightenment and also strength. And it is true because this is why Philip goes on to explain to him Christ. This is why Jesus, in meeting the disciples on the road to Emmaus, says, you foolish men so slow to understand, was not the Christ. Did he not have to suffer before entering into his glory? It is only in the person of Jesus Christ, it is only in the Word made flesh that the truth about man becomes clear. We cannot understand ourselves, our vocations, our call in life, our suffering in life, 
not understand it fully or perfectly apart from Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ, we can't make sense of life. That's the question. This is why God has created us as religious beings, because he is already drawing us into these questions, to ask questions, because he's the answer to every question. So, St. Luke writes, starting therefore with this text of scripture, the very text of the suffering servant, Philip proceeded to explain the good news of Jesus to him. They go along a little further, and the eunuch says, they see some water, he says, is there anything to prevent me from being baptized? Everyone who proclaims Christ leads people to the waters of baptism. Whenever God sends us to someone, there is a question that underlies our being sent. We are prompted. We feel prompted by the Holy Spirit to go. We don't know exactly what we are going to say or exactly what we need to do, but it unfolds itself. God reveals it to us as we speak to these people. We find out where they're at. If they don't know Jesus Christ, we proclaim Christ. If they have never been baptized, then we lead them to. Jesus is teaching on the necessity of baptism as the gateway of eternal life. If they already have been baptized, then we proclaim to them the truth about the one true Catholic Church. If they are already Catholic, we find out where they are at in their spiritual journey, what struggles they might have, the question that lies in their heart, and then we hand over to them the knowledge that God has given to us as free gift. So the eunuch is baptized, and when he comes up out of the waters of baptism, Philip is gone. Thanks for listening to Dr. George on Real Presence Radio. For more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be covering Saul's conversion. And now, back to Dr. George. In chapter 9, we have the story of the conversion of Saul. Saul is going to Damascus. Why? Because there has been the dispersion of the Jews from Jerusalem, and they go into the countryside of Judea, into Samaria, and into regions beyond. In other words, to Damascus. So bent is he on tracking down these people and destroying them, that he goes to the Sanhedrin to get papers or letters, official papers from them, because they're the high court of Israel. And Saul follows these Christians. He hunts them down from place to place so that he can arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem where they can be punished. Now he is going far out of his way to do this. Damascus was some 150 miles. It would have taken days, three, five days to get to Damascus. That's going each way. But he is so fixed on destroying these people. His own actions reveal that he is unreasonable, that he has lost charity. What the truth of God is, is distorted. He is not understanding who God is. He cannot see. He sees evil in his brothers and sisters. He cannot see. We are all united with everyone in the human race. So he's on the road to Damascus. Now, the question in the lesson asks whether the grace of conversion of Saul is the result of anything he does. There's mystery to this question. First of all, we are given Saul not only because he is the great apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, Saul writes what is virtually half of the canon of the New Testament. He is a very, very important figure in the early church. But we are given Saul for another reason as well. He is sort of the example to us of the spiritual journey 
and the conversion, the repentance of heart, and the purification that God must work in all of our minds and hearts in the way we think, the way we see things, the way we understand God, the way we understand charity and how it is to be carried out in our lives. And it requires a complete conversion of heart. So Saul is given to us also for this very reason. He is chosen by God from the beginning. Saul himself will later point this out. This is true for all of us. The prophet Jeremiah, in speaking of his call, reveals what God had told him, which is that before he was born, God says, I called you. From the womb, I dedicated you. A prophet to the nations, I appointed you. We have all been called from the womb. We all have a purpose in life that God intends to accomplish, and he intends to do the work necessary in order for that to be brought about. Now, is the grace of conversion the result of anything he does? Ironically, paradoxically, we can say yes. It's the result of the sin and misery in this man. He's a miserable wretch. We are all miserable wretches. St. Paul will use these very words in one of his letters. It's because of the sin, because he is lost, that God is so solicitous in seeking him that he may be saved. We recall the words that Jesus himself tells St. Faustina in the Revelation of Divine Mercy. He tells us that the greater the sinner, the greater he has a right to his mercy. Remember when St. Paul says, wherever sin abounds, grace abounds the more? God has a plan for Saul, but he is so steeped in his ignorance, in his blindness, in his rebellion, that God must act in a great way to carry out his work in Saul. So, in one regard, he sins, and this calls forth the mercy of God. The grace of conversion given to Saul on the road to Damascus is, as is the case with all of us, a pure, unmerited gift. No one can do anything to merit the gift of conversion. And when we turn to God every time we recognize sin, every time we repent of our sins, God gives us the grace to do so. Our role is to respond to grace. And God had prepared Saul from the beginning for this. Now Saul was an amazing man. In spite of his sinfulness that we encounter in Acts of the Apostles in these first chapters, in spite of his sinfulness, he was called from his mother's womb. He was a brilliant man. He was gifted. He was zealous for the Lord. All of these are gifts. And he will end up being an amazing apostle to the Gentiles. He will be a powerful preacher. St. Paul was a mystic. St. Paul was a miracle worker. All of this. But what we have to keep in mind is what made Paul a saint, what made Paul a holy man, was his total surrender of his life to Jesus Christ and his service in proclaiming the gospel at all costs that he would suffer. He would sacrifice his very life to proclaim Christ, that Christ might be made known. He can do this only because he has to be humbled. This is why there is a way in which God must knock all of us to the ground and humble us and blind us. We are blinded by the light 
because we thought we could see. We remember what Jesus says to the Jews. It's recorded in the Gospel of St. John. He says, because you say you can see, you are blind. But if you would say you were blind, you would not have guilt. Because when we say, Lord, I am blind, I am ignorant, I am a sinner, we already are being cleansed of our guilt because we are receiving the grace of the Holy Spirit, which convinces us of sin. Saul had to be convinced of sin. So it is through his humbling himself, in other words, his receiving the grace of God, and his turning his life over so that he lives it now in humble obedience of faith. He lets God show him the fact of the matter, the truths of Jesus Christ. And he is malleable in the hands of God. He lets God now form him. Whereas before, he sort of was trying to form God in his own image and likeness. So he is struck then on the road to Damascus. And all of the details in this conversion story are meaningful. They're symbolic. Because he is blind, spiritually blind, and he thinks he can see, he thinks he has knowledge and understanding and wisdom, God shows him what real light is. So he is surrounded by this intense light. It's the light of God, the light of Christ, the light of the Holy Spirit. And he now becomes blind because, in fact, what God is showing him is that he cannot see. He is also blinded so that not seeing the way he is accustomed to seeing, according to his human nature, according to his fallen nature, he must now spend three days listening to God in his heart. So God sort of shuts off the rest of the world, and he then is taken by his traveling companions into the city of Damascus. And St. Luke tells us that three days he was there without sight and took neither food nor drink. He is dead. Saul is in the tomb because that grain of wheat has to fall to the ground and die so that God can raise us up to new life. So for three days and three nights, so to speak, he is in the tomb. He is without his sight and he took neither food nor drink. Now God sends Ananias. Again, God chooses the right person. He sends Ananias to Saul, and he also prepares Saul for this encounter, just as the Ethiopian eunuch had been prepared for the encounter with Philip. When Ananias comes to him, he tells Saul that he has been sent by the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you, he says, so that you may recover your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It is as though the scales then fall from his eyes, and he can then see. What happens next? He got up. He was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, we hearken back to something that St. Paul will write later, of course, but this matter of how God has dedicated us from the womb, how, as St. Paul says in his letter to the Romans, those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, this is what is happening with Saul when he is baptized, and it will continue to happen in the several years following, because eventually, as we find out from his own writings, he will go and spend several years, perhaps three years, in Arabia, in the desert, during which time Jesus himself is teaching him. When God talks about the fact that we are predestined, 
We are not predestined in the way that the Calvinists used to say that everyone was predestined. They misunderstood the term predestined in Scripture and said there are those that God is predestined for salvation and those who are predestined for damnation. And the way we can know this is we simply look at a person's life. If they are doing well, then they must be destined for salvation. And if they are sinners, if they're wicked, if they are downtrodden and poor, then they must be predestined for another place. But that term predestined means that God knows why he has created us. He knows the purpose he has given us. He knows how he plans to fulfill it. So what St. Paul will go on to say is, those whom God predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. There is a process in this journey. God destines us. He sets us apart. He has a purpose for us. He will fulfill that purpose if we respond to the grace of conversion. But we have to be convinced of sin, not just once, not just a first time. This happens at the baptismal font. It oftentimes happens to people at some point in their lives when either they knew Christ not at all, or they knew Christ and were baptized and believed in God, but they never really had given their hearts to God. And all of a sudden, people sort of wake up. They have a spiritual awakening someday, and they recognize that up to that point, they had never really handed over their lives to God, handed over their sins, asking God to cleanse them of their sins, to purify them, to make them holy so that they can fulfill the purpose on earth for which God has created each of us. Have we even wondered the purpose that God has created us for? There are multi-purposes, of course, but God has called us each to a vocation. The word vocation means call. We have to hear that call. This is why St. Paul will later explain that faith comes through hearing. There is something very important that happens when we hear the Word of God proclaimed to us. We hear the Word and either we allow the Word to penetrate our hearts and to configure our hearts to the heart of Christ, or we block the Word, we shut the door of our heart, and we don't let the Word enter and change us. Faith comes through hearing. There were many people who heard Jesus preach, but who did not believe in Him, who denied Him. There were people who heard the prophets in the Old Testament and who did not believe them. This is why St. Paul says, and speaking of this, and it touches upon the event of the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip, how can we believe in him unless we have heard of him? He is speaking of Christ. And how can we hear of him unless there is someone to preach? And how can there be preachers unless they are sent? This is why he quotes the prophets in saying, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who proclaim the good news. He goes on to say, but Israel, of course, heard and did not believe. Many, we know, heard Christ and did not believe. Now, Saul, at this point, is hearing Jesus, and what Jesus says to him on the road to Damascus is, why are you persecuting? He doesn't say, my people. He says, why are you persecuting me? Because in persecuting the people of God, we are offending, we are striking at God himself. He says, why are you persecuting me? It's very interesting that in chapter 9 of Acts of the Apostles, St. Luke records that the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless, for though they heard the voice, they could see no one. And in chapter 22, 
when St. Paul is later recounting the same conversion on the road to Damascus, he says, but remember it's still St. Luke recording it, he says that they were not able to hear a voice. And it seems that the passages are contradictory. It's not as if St. Luke has forgotten what he wrote a few chapters earlier. There cannot be contradiction in divine revelation. Whenever something appears to be contradictory, God is always speaking in a mysterious way. He wants us to break it open, to unwrap the mystery. We have to remember that in Scripture, this is true in the Old Testament, it's certainly true in the New, that there are different ways that we hear, that we hear, as Jesus says, he himself quotes the prophets, that so oftentimes we listen and listen, but we do not hear. And in fact, the Greek words in these two passages are not exactly the same words. There is a way in which, there is a way in which we hear, but we don't actually hear or know or understand. And there is a way in which we can hear words, but still not be able to comprehend their meaning. Do you remember in the Gospel of St. John, when Jesus, in speaking of his passion, says, what am I to say, Father, save me from this hour? He says, no. He says, Father, may your name be glorified. And then St. John records it at that moment. The Father speaks. He says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the people nearby, some said they heard a thunderclap. Others said they heard a voice. They heard different things according to perhaps the faith in their heart, the hope in their heart. They didn't hear the same thing. And certainly, if they did hear the words, they would not have been able to comprehend them, not until later, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can go into Mass on Sunday, we can hear the Gospel proclaimed, we can hear a homily, and we can hear audible words, but because we're not even paying attention, because we're distracted, we could not even repeat what those words were. In other words, we don't hear anything but just sound, meaningless sound. There are people who can listen to the words, but who fail to understand the deeper meaning. There are people who, in listening, because they're ready, because they're open, and because the preacher is breaking open the Word of God, the Word penetrates their heart so that now they not only hear the words, but they are given understanding and knowledge so that Scripture is interpreted, and because Scripture is interpreted, the mysteries of Christ are interpreted for us they are handed over to us so now we have true knowledge and understanding. And what happens when we receive true knowledge and understanding is that we desire to embrace the mystery that much more. Then we want the mystery. I want that more fully than I have ever had it before. That's what's going on in really all the passages of this particular lesson. That God is constantly speaking to us, but there is a way in which we have to more and more fully embrace the mystery that he is speaking to us. So, the matter of conversion of heart, the convincing of sin, which is an action of the Holy Spirit, this prepares us for a fuller embracing of the mystery of Christ. That's why the Church, in talking about this matter of convincing of sin, Saul had to be convinced of his sin. In a certain way, the scripture passage doesn't talk about it, but the Ethiopian eunuch, after his baptism and his return home, he will receive graces of convincing of sin that he did not have before because now, being baptized, he has God living in his heart. 
And so he will see things about his life that he never saw before, and he will want to be purified of those things. Simon the magician, after he repents and asks the apostles to pray for him, he has been convinced of his sin in that moment. And in that convincing, the church says we discover a double gift, the gift of the truth of conscience, because when we recognize, when we recognize sin, and when we recognize the truth, because we can only see sin in the light of Christ. And when we see Christ, we become convinced of sin. We see the sin in us for what it truly is. Our conscience speaks to us and even says, yes, you have seen this all along. You've been hearing this all along, our conscience says. This has been a problem you've had all your life. It's been an imperfection you've dealt with for many years. And all of a sudden we see the horror of it, and we don't want that anymore. But that's a grace. It is a great grace that comes from the Holy Spirit in this convincing of sin. And secondly, after the truth of conscience, we have the gift of the certainty of redemption. That's a beautiful thing. The spirit of truth is the consoler. One would think that in being convinced of sin, we would feel worse and worse about ourselves. But the opposite is what happens. In recognizing sin, we repent of it, and yes, we grieve over that. But at the very same moment, we recognize that what God wills is the forgiveness of sins and the cleansing and purification. God wants to heal us and make us whole. All of our sinfulness has its roots in the wounds of our heart, the wounds of our soul. When we have inordinate attachments to things, when we keep stumbling into the same old vices, there is a wound, an imperfection in the heart that God wants to heal so that we can be made whole. Once we recognize that all of this convincing of sin is about divine mercy, the more we see our misery, the more we can be assured of God's grace because it is God himself who reveals our misery to us so that we will open our hearts up more widely to the grace of his healing and his holiness. That is why the Spirit of Truth is the consoler. Because once we receive that grace, we then are consoled. We have the consolation of the Spirit, knowing that it is in Christ we are saved. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Please tune in next time while Dr. George continues with Acts of the Apostles. She will be covering the following three topics from Acts chapter 9, verse 31 through chapter 11. Peter raises the dead. Second, Peter proclaims salvation to the Gentiles. And third, the church at Antioch. For further information, please visit us online at sacredheartproductions.org.